gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm sorry if I'm a little disoriented. Um, I was in Florida for a couple of days for um, a speech thing and some work stuff, and I just woke up from a nap after I got home, and I'm still all foggy-headed, and I've had that hooked-on-a-feeling song stuck in my head now for almost 24 hours because Rachel Laramore um, put uh, the headline on the Wednesday G-File, um, Hooked on a Feeling. Um, or at least that was part of it, I guess. What was the whole thing? Let me see. Um, was we're hooked on a feeling of despair. Um, and then the subtitle was, and high on believing that everything is worse than it is. And, um, I, I, I turned out that that G file turned out pretty well and I got a lot of great feedback on it. Um, even though I, you know, I jammed it up pretty quickly hung over smoking cigars on a balcony on a rainy day in Fort Lauderdale. So I'm kind of happy with it. And it's sort of been, so I know some listeners don't like it when I regurgitate stuff that I've written, but since this is behind the membership wall um, and it's something that's still in my head and I can't, and I haven't been able to follow the news with granularity the last couple of days, because I've been um, busy with other stuff, except for some of this January 6th stuff, which I've talked about now on two different podcasts my own and on the dispatch podcast. So I don't want to belabor that any further, at least for now. Um, so let me just sort of start there, right? Uh, I'm doing this all alone. The, the No one's listening in as I record this, which um, I, I have to say I sometimes prefer because it makes me less self-conscious, although I don't know. Anyway, um, so basically what put this in my head was this New York Times story um from earlier this week where um there there's this burgeoning field of eco psychology where basically therapists psychiatrists psychologists i'm not sure um you know how distributed those different job titles are in this field but regardless there are a bunch of people in the helping professions are dealing with a whole bunch of people who are um just freaking out about climate change to the point where they have crippling phobias about the future and think that their kids are going to inherit some sort of horrible world that is going to deprive them of even the meagerest offerings of joy or life satisfaction. And, um, and I know that I'm sort of a broken record on this, but this is, this is just not true. You know, I mean, like if, if you follow the science um, which is what I keep getting told I'm supposed to do when it comes to climate change. Um, most of the people out there with kids, like if you have your kids in the car listening right now, yeah, you, you, you might have some bad weather. You, you might have, you know, um, there might be more forest fires. There might be more coastal flooding. There might not, but you know, it's definitely possible. Um, there could be weird things happening with, you know, various animal migrations and animal populations. There are things that we are going to be doing to mitigate a lot of these things. But what it's not going to be is this arid landscape or, you know, uh, CGI movie with tidal waves and um, 
um, or like what was in the day after tomorrow where all of a sudden uh, the United States uh, freezes to subarctic temperatures and wolves from the Central Park Zoo start running through the New York Public Library. Yeah, that's not going to happen. And um, and, and I mean, I, so I have this view. Maybe it's because I spent a big chunk of my 20s working for, you know, Ben Wattenberg and hanging around with this guy, Julian Simon. And then I worked for this friend of mine, Ron Bailey, and all three of them were sort of on the beat of, of pushing back against the most extreme prophecies of environmental uh, doom, which, you know, occur in basic, have been occurring in almost every generation to one extent or another for a while now. Um, I don't know about in the 19th century because I don't think we thought in those kinds of terms, but there was a lot. There was other forms of apocalypticism and, you know, uh, in millenarian uh, angst about, you know, the, you know, what's the, the whole world going off a cliff or, you know, redemption coming and all that kind of stuff. Um, cats and dogs sleeping together. And it just occurs to me or it just feels to me that the. The desire which is sort of the wrong word but the sort of the addiction to um this sort of existential dread about the end of the world coming and the environment dying and and the future being terrible uh remains remarkably constant even and you can the, the, as i put it in the piece the reason you can tell it's kind of an addiction is because the facts to support these kinds of things uh, keep changing, right? The evidence and the and the 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 material, you know, drivers um, and mechanisms of the supposed doom keep getting swapped out for other ones. Um, but what stays constant is this craving for this conviction that doom is coming. And so, you know. Um, in the 60s and 70s, it was overpopulation, right? The population bomb and all that stuff. It was uh, a little later, it was like the, the hole in the ozone layer. Um, it was, um, you know, we're going to run out of food, which is, of course, related to the overpopulation thing. Um, it was pollution in waters and riverways and, 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 um, and all of that. It was for a brief period. And I think some guys on the right overplay this, but there's definitely, you know, a cottage industry saying we were coming up on the next ice age. Um, and, and then there were, and of course there was also nuclear war, which I think taps into the same part of our brain. Um, you know, I mean, I grew up, you know, being subjected to a lot of that stuff about how, you know, we should all go to bed terrified about nuclear war. Um, and I remember, what was it? It was, there was the day after the, no, it was, it was the day after, which was, uh, this made for TV movie with like Jason Robards about a nuclear war and what it would be like. And then there was a much grimmer one. I think it was called threads. I should have looked it up, but I didn't know I was going to be talking about this. Um, that they had in the UK that made it over here. Um, but anyway, it's, you know, it's, whether it's nuclear war or climate change, there's this, this sort of constant thing. And the problem is, is like, you know, overpopulation is now basically nobody's concern unless you're making a matrix movie or something like that. Um, and, uh, um, you know, because populations as, as, as friend of the podcast, uh, Lyman Stone will tell you, you know, fertility rates all around the world have been dropping for a while. And in, 
most of the industrialized, economically advanced world, they are below replacement. Um, and, um, you know, we fixed the ozone hole layer problem. I mean, it's still up there, but they think it's gonna be completely closed by like 2040 or 2050. And it's so much smaller now that it's just really not a major concern. Um, we fixed acid rain in the United States. Uh, our air, our water, um, are in our, I, I was about to say immeasurably cleaner, but they're in fact measurably cleaner because we know how much cleaner they are and they're a lot cleaner. I follow this account, which I love. Um, I'm, I'm a kind of um, bird nerd. I'm not a bird watcher. I don't go off in the woods and say, oh my gosh, it's a henpecked garbled wobbler or anything like that. But I really like birds. I keep my bird feeder going. Um, I'm interested in seeing wild things in urban and suburban areas. And so I follow on Twitter this thing called, uh, I think it's Manhattan Bird Alert. And most of it is um, wild birds spotted in Central Park. And the thing is like 25 years ago, I guess, 30 years ago, there were two hawks that lived on a balcony, basically on Fifth Avenue overlooking uh, like the Alice in Wonderland little park thing in Central Park. And I cannot tell you how freaked out people were. This was a huge, they did a 60 minutes piece on these hawks. Like, oh my gosh, how did they find their way here? This is like a real life Disney movie, wild animals in New York. People went bonkers, including me. I thought it was great. I just was obsessed with it. It was cool. Now it's sort of like, eh, because like Central Park is full of these kinds of animals. There are, there are great horned owls. There are spotted owls. There are hawks of different kinds. There's even a bald eagle every now and then. Hudson River has whales in it. They're bringing back, they're not quite there yet, but you know, they're working really hard to bring back oysters into the, into New York Harbor and the Hudson where once they were just out of control, the best oysters in the, in the country, allegedly, um, you know, as I point out in the piece, the Cuyahoga river was on fire the year I was born. And now most of it, you can, you can fish and swim in, um, uh, you go across the whole country, just like, there were places where people thought like when I was a kid, if you told me that, you know, you would see whales in the Hudson river again, or that people would talk seriously about, you know, fishing for anything other than these gross eels that people used to fish for when I was, um, you know, a little kid, you'd see them down on over Riverside park, um, and pulling out these like elaginous gross creatures. Um, um, if oleaginous is a word, I might think of oleaginous. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Gross, weird eel things. Um, and now there's all sorts of fish in the Hudson. I mean, again, it's a work in progress. But the point is, and, and I'm this is not some novel insight from me. You know, Greg Easterbrook wrote you know, a book called The Progress Paradox uh, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, talking about how Americans could not really, particularly the progressive left, could not comprehend or process the fact that like the environment was actually getting better. Um, and this shows up in polls, you know, people, the, 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 the people who think that the environment is getting worse or that the water quality is getting worse. It, it, it kind of holds pretty constant, you know, as a majority to supermajority of Americans. And it's just not true. It's just factually untrue. You know, we have more forests in um, America, particularly in eastern, uh, the eastern half of America, than we had 100 years ago. Um, you know, we don't use forests for 
We don't use wood as a primary source of fuel anymore. We don't, and I remember Ron Bailey wrote in one of the, you know, cause this was his bait beat for a long time too. Um, you know, something like 25% of all harvested lumber went for use in railroad ties. Um, and, uh, you know, we just use wood as the primary source for, for construction, for transportation stuff. Um, you know, I'm talking about like making the, the, the buggies and carts and whatever. We used a lot of wood. We used a lot of forests. We also cut down a lot of forests for farmland because our farming was so much more inefficient. And now, you know, uh, you can walk through parts of Maine, the, the woods in Maine, and you'll find like the walls from farmhouses that were built a hundred years ago and then abandoned because the, and the forests have just reclaimed them. And again, this is not to say that we don't have environmental problems. We got, um, you know, I, I truly worry about the state of the oceans. Um, ocean, uh, ocean acidification is a real problem and it's largely driven by the climate change stuff and, and climate change is, is, is a real issue. Um, uh, you know, habitat loss is a real thing. That's less driven by climate change than people want to tell you, you know, um, it has more to do with like clear cutting Amazon forests for crappy ranches and stuff in Brazil and whatnot. Um, but yeah, we got real problems and we have real problems in the United States too, um, still too, in terms of, you know, environmental stuff, but you know, most of them aren't driven that much by climate change. I guess the forest fire stuff is to a certain extent, but there's also, you know, if you've ever read God and man at Yellowstone, you know, the way we've, we've managed our national forests for over a century has gotten into a, a big chunk of this mess. Anyway, I didn't plan on writing about environmentalism and I didn't plan on repeating this whole environmentalism thing here today. My only point is, is that part of the problem we've got is that at a very fundamental level in this culture, in terms of the movies that Hollywood makes, in terms of the kind of reporting that, that the media does, um, the way we teach about the environment in school, um, people have convinced themselves or allowed themselves to become convinced that things just aren't getting better, that capitalism is an inherently uh, poisonous thing for the environment. And what's tragic about this is that you would, you know, like in your normal life, you know, I think most people have some familiarity with like the concept in your own life of like stacking up wins, you know, or how success breeds more success. When you're kind of, when, when things are just going right for you and you're executing on a whole bunch of things or you get, you, you get good grades and then it proves to yourself that you can get better grades, you know, that you can keep getting good grades. I mean, this is just a fundamental thing about human nature, both on an individual basis and on, on, a, on a societal basis, is that if you teach, if you show people that they're making progress, they want to make more progress. You know, the, it, and it gives you a sense of confidence that things are fixable. And so, you know, there are there are things that people want to do to stop climate change I disagree with. And there are things that people want to do to stop climate change I got no problem with. And there are things that people are going to do to mitigate the effects of climate change that are going to be necessary, um, you know, depending on which scenario plays out. But we don't tell people that we're making any progress, you know, um, and so that just breeds despair. And you see the same thing in a sort of an analogous way on the right where, you know, I mean, this is sort of my 
you know, hobby horse lately, you know, I wrote last week about this too, about how, you know, both sides think it's both sides think the other side is the only one waging a culture war and both sides think the other side wins all the time. And neither of these things are true. Both sides fight the culture war. Both sides fight legitimate culture war issues. And I think there are legitimate culture war issues and both sides fight utterly bogus nonsense manufactured culture war issues for fun and profit. And one of the great tests of being politically engaged in life is trying to um, delineate or discern what the bogus culture war garbage is from the real culture war stuff. You know, um, and I don't want to get down that rabbit hole, but uh, the how did I get on this? Um, oh, yeah. So on the right, there are a bunch of people who have convinced themselves and are trying to convince everybody else that um, everything about the culture has gotten worse, that society is decadent and broken, that, um, you know, we need to sort of you know, throw away the existing system and start over. And um, it's just garbage. There are a lot of things about the culture that have improved. And, you know, it's, it's funny if you go back and you look at, I don't know when I, I ha must have it here somewhere. It's not one of the ones I threw away. Um, Bill Bennett's book, he did a thing, uh, index of leading cultural indicators. And, um, you know, and I was part of a lot of those kinds of arguments back in the nineties as a little policy gnome. And, you know, and there were a lot of those kinds of charts in, in Wattenberg's book as well. Um, you know, a lot of the things that the people who are saying the culture has fallen apart pointed to are things that aren't that big a problem anymore. Um, you know, I mean, divorce rates, uh, you know, the, have stabilized at least for certain segments of the, of the society. For other parts of the society, the problem isn't so much divorce rates as, as people not getting married at all. Um, people used to think that promiscuity was had run a map and was is going you know, and that we were becoming too much of a, uh, licentious libertine, um, society with, you know, just wanton sex everywhere. And now, you know, like the bigger, you know, the, the a, a competing cause of concern now is that young people just aren't that aren't as interested in the sex as they used to be, particularly among sort of like, um, affluent elites. And, um, and, uh, you know, you've all did a great piece for us on the, on the dispatch a while back about this, that I actually wrote a G file about, like, we kind of have a little bit of the Japanese disease where people are just sort of losing their libidos and their desire for that kind of thing. And that's a real concern, but it's not the same concern that we had 30 years ago among the culture warriors, you know, and then there was like crime which was a huge driver. It was the biggest single driver, I would argue, of the sense that society was falling apart. And yes, crime is coming back now, and it is a, it is a major concern, and it needs to be dealt with expeditiously. But, you know, three years ago, crime was not a big problem. When Trump came in talking about an American carnage, crime was at near 30, 40 year lows. Um, the, you know, and if, if so, if the idea is that society has been steadily falling apart because of liberal democratic capitalism or modernity or whatever it is, you know, again, the, the, the things that are driving despair for people who sincerely despair of what's happening in society, um, 
just sort of like, you know, the environmental things that are supposed to be, you know, exhibit A of these problems, the second they cease being the major problem, they get replaced by something else, but the despair just stays there. And, and now we live in a, you know, a media industrial complex where people, you know, make money um, and get famous by fueling despair. They're basically despair merchants. And, um, um, oh, so like there's, anyway, so there's this other point I wanted to make about that. I made a piece a little bit, I think is worth pondering. And, and I heard pod make a similar point recently. Um, so, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Peter Thiel these days, but, uh, you know, he had that, that good point, you know, where basically it's boiled down to, um, you know, we wanted, uh, jet packs and instead we got gifts or something like that, right. Or, or memes or whatever, or Snapchat. The point being that we've gotten, we have, we have huge technological progress with, um, you know, manipulating ones and zeros and images and sounds and that kind of thing. But we haven't made as much progress in the physical corporeal world. Um, one of my listeners or readers is, was very cross with me for using the phrase meat space, um, which I remember from like neuromancer or something. I thought that this was an accepted sort of jokey term about, um, the physical world as opposed to the sort of the dig digital astral projection realm of, of, you know, um, of, of the metaverse or whatever we're supposed to call it now. But anyway, the, in the physical world, you know, we haven't had as much progress. Where are, where are our moon bases? Damn it. You know, is the, the, the gist of the argument. And I think that, and this was, and this was a big chunk of Ross Douthat's book on decadence. And I think there's a lot of merit to that, you know, to this complaint, and when I say complaint, I don't, I don't necessarily mean that like, I mean, complaint's sort of the word wrong, wrong word because it sort of assumes that if we had just filed our grievance with the right department, the scientists would have invented jetpacks first and iPhone second or something when in fact you can't really plan this stuff out. But I do think that the fact that we haven't had as much progress in the physical world as we kind of hoped and thought we would a half century ago um has created problems and um it's a legitimate thing but what is sort of amazing to me or disturbing to me is how in the in american culture you know first of all there's just an american culture of sort of let's just do it right let's just fix it um let's just make the damn thing um, you know, the, the, that just sort of can do spirit is very American, regardless of ideology. Um, um, and there's also this sort of shocking turn that has come from, um, progressivism, which is that progressivism since, you know, I don't know where you want to start with, you know, who invented progressivism, but let's just say for the sake of argument, it was Auguste Comte, you know, the, the French philosopher who coined the phrase, uh, sociology and was the founder of positivism. Um, he was also the founder of this thing called the religion of humanity, which was super creepy. And that, uh, Herbert Crowley, the founder of the new Republic and the author of the promise of American life was literally born and baptized into the religion of humanity. And it made, it made scientists into saints and whatnot. But anyway, we can go down that rabbit hole another time. 
progressivism you know was was profoundly committed to this idea that with the application of human will we could do almost anything and again there's the there's a there's the philosophical sort of you know religious ideological form of progressivism which i've spent a lot of my life having arguments with but there's also just the sort of idea of progress which is embedded in america you know um and uh you know star trek you know wagon train in space just you give us just you know give us the, the 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 time and the necessity and we'll come up with the invention and um and it kind of feels that at a cultural level that stuff is just at the lowest ebb i think it has been in american history and you combine it with the third problem which is that you know the only thing <laughs> that gave conservatism as a political force any chance of having real purchase in america um as a majority point of view was a certain sunny optimistic can-do philosophy and faith in the goodness and decency of the american people and when was the last time you heard any of that i mean donald trump never talked like that um none of his followers really talk like that except in this sort of bitter pinched way when they're treating those kinds of americans as victims um you know but gone is a sort of any form of like reaganite sunny optimisms you know kind of attitude and even even now and then you know there are some people who use that kind of rhetoric um but they use it in in a sort of a voice in a pose that sort of suggests they're profoundly constipated and um and that they don't really mean it they're just sort of mouthing it in a bitter and angry way and um and the problem is and again it's just it's all based on this addiction to despair this addiction to sort of like okay how can we take this news and frame it as more evidence everything is getting worse and um i think it's 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 truly dysfunctional you know and and i go on in the piece actually begin with this which is a big thing for my book about how the antidote to all of this is gratitude but i i, I want to move on um you know but the the yeah i mean look i've made the case for gratitude a bunch of times you've heard it before um you can read it in the g file read it in my book or whatever um um you could read yuval's wonderful remarks on this when he got the bradley prize um but you know, the larger problem is, I mean, the, the, lar the larger dysfunction stems from the fact that like, go through the last 15 things you saw on a cable news channel that were supposed to make you freaked out and angry about how things are going, you know? Um, and then try to match them up with a problem in your actual life, right? Something that has actually physically affected you or someone you love. And there are going to be some on that list that do line up, right? Crime is entirely possible that it lined up. Inflation affects everybody. Totally legitimate. Um, some of the COVID stuff. Yeah, to be sure. But, you know, a lot of the rest of it, not too much. Um, and I'm not saying that just because you aren't personally affected, you shouldn't care about something like critical race theory or something like that. But like, 
it, I think, you know, people need a kind of, you know, detoxification cleanse where they think about, okay, why am I so invested in something that is almost entirely abstract to me? And I had this other idea. I, I mentioned this briefly on the, on the dispatch pod earlier this week. It'd be really useful if I could convince everybody in America or not everybody in America, because a lot of people are perfectly healthy and aren't paying attention to all this garbage, but everybody who is like way invested in these political fights and the culture war fights and, and, and political activist ideology stuff, you know, if, if all of them were just simply deprived of their number one explanation for why they're angry at the other side. Right. And so here, what I sort of mean by this is like, I'll put this in my head was, you know, Stacey Abrams, who I am not a big fan of, uh, she had that, you know, incompetent photo of her maskless in, bunch, in front of a bunch of kids and teachers. They all had masks on. She got an enormous amount of grief for it. She deserved to get grief for it. Maybe she got too much grief for it. I mean, again, it's not the, it's not, it, it was symbolically incredibly dumb and, and politically incredibly dumb. But again, did it affect you in your real life that much? If you have kids in school, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. But um, she deserved grief for it and she deserves criticism for it. And what she should have done is just simply say, you know, I screwed up and move on. And she did eventually say, I screwed up and move on. But before she did that, she had to lash out and basically say anybody who was criticizing her was, um, you know, a dishonest, evil hack and, you know, vaguely racist, you know, how dare you do this during Black History Month, all that kind of stuff. And, and for Stacey Abrams, racism is almost always a go-to first response for any thing that bothers her or anything that's criticism. You hear this all the time. Um, and not just, I don't mean to single out Stacey Abrams. I mean, just sort of, there are, I, we can give you chapter and verse if need be, but there are a lot of people who really, who, whose go-to explanation for almost everything bad that they don't like from the Republicans is racism. I mean, I remember when, uh, you know, uh, what's his face? Lawrence O'Donnell. Did, I did a piece for National Review about this where Lawrence, Lawrence O'Donnell um, insisted, I mean, insisted with, with a kind of like, um, condescending you fools. Why would you even, you know, be, you know, at, um, skeptical of my brilliance in making this insight kind of, I was really arrogant where he said that, that when Mitch McConnell at the, the 2012 convention, uh, made fun of how much Obama golfed um that this was a veiled dog whistle to associate barack obama with uh tiger woods and this was racist for a bunch of different reasons um you know there's that kind of stuff right it's just like it's just so easy for people to go immediately towards racism towards racism so what if you know sort of like you know, and like, I don't know, and like the, in what was it, Rocky two or Rocky three where, um, uh, Mickey forces Rocky to learn how to fight, uh, uh, right-handed, you know, he ties his left arm to get rid of his southpawness or, you know, any of those like wax on wax off kind of things. What if like you just told people, even when you're really sure 
that it's racist, um, that so-and-so said whatever, that you have to go to the next explanation down on your list. Um, same thing with like, you know, for conservatives, you know, th this is because they're, 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 they're Marxists or they're socialists or they're communists or whatever. Um, because odds are you're going to increase your accuracy rate pretty well simply by not using the, the, your go-to, um, rhetorical card because it is so overused by so many, you know, these things are so overused by so many people, um, where, and it, and, and, and if you convince yourself that you have a singular explanation for all of the evils in the world, um, first of all, you're going to miss the humanity of a lot of people. But second of all, you're going to, as another way to sort of feel despair because of like, if you honestly think that, you know, oh my gosh, they didn't use, you know, uh, I don't know that they, um, they didn't use gluten-free flour because they're racist, um, then you're really going to think that like racism is, is everywhere and in everything and is not fixable and is only going to get worse. Even though much like with the environment, this country is so much ra less racist than it was 50 years ago by almost every conceivable metric. Um, and yet you talk to people or you listen to the kinds of people who dominate, you know, racial talk in America and to listen to them, things of, you know, that not only is, is racism endemic and systemic and institutionalized in America, but it's getting worse, right? And the, the forces of white supremacy are rising, which is so insane for a country that used to have slaves uh, over a hundred years ago and had uh, institutionalized legal uh, segregation, you know, uh, half a century ago, a little less, a little more, um, to say that things are getting worse um, when it comes to race is just insane. And it's a sign that you are addicted to this doom and gloom stuff rather than to, you know, following where reality is taking you. All right, where else to go? Um, speaking of despair, um, I should at least acknowledge it. I, I'm definitely not going to get big into it, but you know, this is the, this week marks the anniversary, the, I believe the 11th anniversary of, um, my brother's passing. And, um, and I was up in New York. I mean, I, up at my mom's house, uh, earlier this week and looking at old pictures and stuff, uh, not tied to the date just cause I was there for other stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really talk about this too much with my mom for, I think, understandable human reasons. Um, but there's really almost nobody left out there for me to talk about my brother too. Um, and I just sort of feel like I should acknowledge it somewhere because he is not, is not forgotten. Um, also, by the time you listen to this, it will be my daughter's birthday, which is very exciting. I will tell you next week about the exciting birthday present we got her. Um, even though we will not, um, be there to give it to her. It's very exciting. Very exciting. I hope it works out. S stay tuned. Um, and so what else to talk about? Um, all right, I guess I'll talk about the CNN thing. Um, as you can tell, I'm kind of reluctant to do it. I have not followed a bunch of people have tried to say, Oh my gosh, did you see what so-and-so said about you? Or, you know, um, if you seen how people are losing, uh, their minds over this. And my standard answer has been no, because I don't want to see it. Not because I'm afraid of it. Um, or I 
particularly at this point, the people who like have turned me into some sort of demonic figure or some sort of, you know, uh, whipping boy or straw man for their various causes. I have so little respect for them that, um, I don't actually, as a matter of like self-esteem kind of thing, give a rat's ass what they have to say. I mean, there are websites out there that have dedicated tags to like me and David French, um, because they've kind of turned um, sort of their bullshittery into a sort of a cottage industry of fan service. And, but the reason I don't pay attention to it is because the thing I'm afraid of is that I'll respond, that I will be, you know, annoyed or exasperated by the, you know, the, the, the bad faith of it all, and then lower myself into like this stupid, you know, punching down kind of thing, or um, letting people think that, you know, it got under my skin. And in part, because it does sometimes get under my skin if I see it, um, because I just get so like, exasperated by the, the cravenness of, of some of it. And, you know, look, I'm sure for some people, it's totally sincere. They don't like me. I can live with this. I've been doing this stuff. I've, I've, I've lived a life with lots of people disliking me for a very, very long time. And I'm, I got a pretty thick skin for that kind of thing. But some of the people I know who, 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 who engage in this kind of stuff, um, I know how they behave in private. I know a little bit more about where they're coming from in real life and the cynicism that informs a lot of what they're doing and the careerism and opportunism. And, um, and sometimes you just feel like, why should I let these people get away with this kind of thing? And so I'm just like, I'm not going to pay attention to it. They don't deserve that much room in my headspace. Um, but you know, they're also sincere people. And I've heard from a bunch who, you know, are like stunned that, um, I would sign up with CNN. So first of all, I guess I should start by saying, uh, contrary to what a lot of people seem to think, I'm not working for them. I'm not an employee of CNN, just as I was not an employee of Fox. It's a contributor agreement. This is what basically, um, everybody who's not, you know, um, a, most of the people that you see on, you know, cable news networks as um, identified as being someplace else, <laughs> right? If they say Fox reporter or Fox correspondent or, you know, Fox host, then they work for Fox. But uh, for the most part, or CNN or MSNBC, you know, depending on, you know, what the Chiron says, right? But, um, you know, the contributors, you get paid either a set amount for the year um, to be on call to do, you know, analysis and commentary or let's just call it punditry um or you get paid per appearance um and that's you know um uh but you're not getting health insurance you're not being told where to go and what to do either the cnn people aren't your bosses or anything like that neither are the fox people it's just that's just how it works um the so look there were there are a bunch of people like, how could you possibly work at CNN? You've criticized CNN in the past. Yeah. And I frankly plan to criticize people at CNN in the future. Um, uh, you know, and if I get yelled at by CNN people for, you know, pissing inside the tent, the way I did at Fox, I'll deal with that, you know, as it comes. But, um, you know, the fact is, is that, um, there's a, just a, there's an asymmetry between you know, what was asked of me at Fox versus what I 
I'm in good faith believe is asked of me at CNN. Um, at Fox, basically, um, I was not allowed to be, I shouldn't say allowed. I was not encouraged or given the opportunities to be my whole self. Um, you know, like when I would disagree with something, you know, it's funny, you know, for, for five years, people would be like, well, if you disagree with Hannity so much, or if you disagree with Tucker so much, why don't you go on their show and say it to their face? And they make it sound like I'm the one reluctant to um, engage in a debate when the fact is that they control their shows. And when they refuse to have somebody on their show or when somebody doesn't appear on their show, the, the primary reason for it is because they don't want them on. You know, Hannity does not have people who really disagree with him on his show. Um, and neither does Tucker. Tucker, you know, um, I mean, Tucker, Tucker at least has people on to to grill and have combative interviews with. But for the most part, the, you know, the guests are props for the cult of the host. Um, and, you know, so I I was friends with Tucker for two decades. You know, when he got a show, not once did he ever invite me on his show, even though we had you know, good faith disagreements and friendly disagreements, at least in the beginning, because he doesn't want, there are thousands of people he could have on a show who could offer smart rebuttals to a lot of his garbage. He doesn't do it. And so that was the dynamic throughout the opinion side at Fox was I was, you know, not invited on shows, um, that were wildly pro Trump. Um, and on the few occasions where I was, the topics were hand selected to be ones where I was aiming all of my fire leftward. Um, and I mean, I think it's funny. The last time I was on Fox and friends was during the Kavanaugh hearings and Kavanaugh and I was all in for Kavanaugh, right? I, I, I had written um, a piece for national review saying, you know, this is the first time in the Trump administration where um most conservative, even most conservatives who are anti-Trump or Trump skeptical or not on the Trump train are all on board for something on Trump's agenda in a real way, because the way the left responded to the Kavanaugh nomination was so bad and so uh, um, grotesque that it, it unified the right. And I think that was true. And you know, so I was entirely in favor of the Kavanaugh, you know, confirmation. And so they had me on Fox and Friends and, you know, Pete Hegseth gets in my ear during the commercial break, it was Fox and Friends weekend, I guess, and gets in my ear in commercial break and says, John, it's so great that you're on the Trump train now or something like that. And I was like, hey, Pete, I'm happy to talk about the topic you guys booked me for, but I'm not on the Trump train. And, you know, I'm, and he's, oh, we'll get you a MAGA hat. He's like, no, you won't, <laughs> you know, and it got, it didn't get testy, but it got, you know, it was, I had my position and, and he was surprised by it. And I made some reference to that. I should probably go find the video when I actually did the segment. And that Campos Duffy person, um, apparently afterwards, you know, went on a terror about like, what more, you know, why, why, you know, why in the world, you know, is Goldberg still, you know, critical of Trump? What more does he want? Yada, yada, yada. And that was the last time I was on that show. And, um, and so part of the problem I had was that at Fox, first of all, there's an asymmetry in the the actual content, particularly the Fox opinion side content that was coming out, the anti-vax stuff, I think was reprehensible. And in some cases, just sinister, if not just plain evil. Um, there was, of course, the Patriot Purge thing, which I've talked about you know, more than once, um, which I think is different than other sort of normal uh, 
ideological excessiveness. It's it's a fundamentally pernicious, you know, bit of agitprop, and um, I found it profoundly offensive. And by the way, so do a lot of people at Fox. Um, uh, but the basic dynamic was that I couldn't, you know, that I felt like I was lending my name and imprimatur or whatever or reputation. Um, in aid and support of a lot of stuff that I didn't just disagree with. I'm going to disagree with God knows a lot of stuff at CNN. Um, probably quantity wise, more I'll disagree with more stuff that goes out over CNN's airwaves than I did with stuff that went over at Fox's airwaves. But Fox, whether it admits it or not, is the primary driver of what defines conservatism and the alleged principles of the Republican Party these days. And for me to go on as a conservative and virtually never be able to get in a contrary word about the immense amount of garbage that went out over the airwaves over there, um, it felt like I was lending my name to it. And, um, and it just got incredibly frustrating. And particularly when I'm taking money from them and I'm, and I'm in, I am, I am, it's not that I just couldn't piss inside the tent as, as Ailes used to call it and criticize people by name. I wasn't given an opportunity, um, to really criticize the ideas that were being peddled. You know, I would get asked questions that were almost entirely about things other than Trump and the MAGA stuff. And if I were the one, if I were to somehow like cram in anti-Trump stuff in the context of what I was at, brought on to talk about, I would look like I was obsessed with Trump. You know, it was like a setup. Um, I'm not saying that was the intent, like to set me up or entrap me into looking deranged about this stuff, but that was just the way the dynamic worked. And I felt like I couldn't keep taking money. I couldn't be running, you know, uh, you know, helping run the dispatch, which was founded on a sort of sense of principles. Um, I felt like I couldn't be honest to myself or the public in that kind of context. And it's funny, I'll just, you know, give you an example of this because I, I, I'm surprised that it's as hard for some people to grasp um, as it is. And I'm not saying in a condescending way. It's just, I think there are people who, you know, if you, if, if you're not in this business, um, a lot of these sorts of considerations have just never occurred to people before. And frankly, for a lot of people in this business, these kinds of considerations have never occurred to them before. Um, but I just give you an example. The other day, Martha McCallum, who I like, uh, was sitting in as host for Fox news Sunday. And uh, and during the panel, the, the whole January six resolution thing came up or maybe it was the Mike Pence thing or whatever, but I think it was the January six resolution thing and, uh, RNC resolution thing. And Martha goes to Juan Williams to, uh, answer the question about that. And I'm not, I, I, I'm not making any speculation about larger motives or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just saying that's the kind of dynamic I was used to. So here goes Juan Williams and he criticizes as one would expect the RNC for what it wrote about January 6th being legitimate political discourse, yada, yada, yada. And you could get the impression that, that because it was only the liberal on the panel who was asked the question and who offered a criticism along those lines, um, 
that that was just like the liberal position, right? That like, and this is this is the dynamic that frustrated me so much about so much of Fox. The only people who were on Fox who um, consistently were allowed to again allowed is the wrong word, you know, but like were free to um, in the structure of the place speak their mind openly in ways that that fundamentally differed from the partisan party line bs that defines um you know so much of this stuff um were the are the token liberals and democrats you know and because that's what they were there for and so the impression that a lot of people get who watch fox is that the only people in america who have real problems with say um the january 6 riot or think it's a big deal are liberals that it's a liberal thing right that it is it is a, a democratic talking point to be um pissed off about uh that thing and um and this is a, and so like and 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 then because i'm not given an opportunity to say no 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 conservatives have a problem with these things too um it becomes codified as sort of like the part the definition of the ideological positions on both sides when i'm on cnn like i'm there to like give my conservative opinion right and so sh i am sure there are going to be a lot of people who are going to want me to like beat up constantly on fox i don't want to do that they're going to be a bunch of people who are going to want me to just be you know the, the the same kind of problem that charlie sykes has gotten stuck with at msnbc where they they want him for the trump bashing and little else and if that's that's all i get stuck with which i don't think is the case and i've been given assurances that it's not going to be the case but you know they're going to be individuals who are going to want to make that the case um, you know, then, you know, I'll, I'll take CNN's money for a year or two and move on. But, you know, the promises I've been made, and I, I think they've been made in good faith is that I get to be my whole self. And so if that means I'm going to have a lot of arguments with, I don't know, you know, Jeffrey Tubin, um, that's fine. Right. Cause that's what I'm there for. Um, and that's what I signed up to do. But I, you know, if you've read me for the last six years, you know, since the rise of the Trump stuff, um, you know what my whole self is and it's not, you know, the, 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 the Fox line. And yet I was used, I felt like I was used as a prop for the Fox line, not by Brett and special report for the most part, you know, not for, not by everybody, but that was the, that was the, the, that was the general feeling and when you added in the fact that i was you know co that i co-founded this thing that is about a different kind of journalism and that i have i think i've been very consistent on this point that i care more about conservatism than i do about the republican party or about politics generally and like i felt like i was hurting conservatism by you know by that dynamic that's you know and then you know there was this the the anvil that broke the camel's back with the Tucker thing, because the Patriot Purge thing was grotesque and shameful. Um, but you know, we can move off of this. I just that's that's anyway. You may think that this is a grotesque rationalization. A bunch of people send me stuff and say, you know, look at what so and so said on CNN. This is just as bad as Patriot Purge. Well, a, it's not. Um, something can be equal. Look, I mean, like two things can be equally untrue because there is you know, a certain kind of either it's true or it's there's a certain kind of binary thing to be untrue and true, right? You know, is is two plus two equals 10 
more untrue than two plus two equals a duck? In one sense, yes, right? Because duck's not a number. In another sense, no, because both both statements are untrue. But like the the just because something is maddening or annoying that somebody says on one cable network um, doesn't mean that like it's as sinister or as as dangerous as another thing that is untrue on another network. Um, and the sort of false equivalence that I've gotten a bunch of from a bunch of people um, is uh, unpersuasive, let's say. Um, but look, this this sort of audience capture thing is is real. Uh, you know, that guy, what, uh, what's his name? Um, you know, Josh Hammer after January 6th, uh, that Christian Vanderbrook guy got, you know, he spends a lot more time on Twitter than I do. He spotted this, you know, after January 6th, he wrote this piece for Newsweek about how Trump has to go and the, you know, conservatism needs to move on. And this was a violent riot, insurrection, whatever, something along those lines. Um, and then last week, you know, Mitch McConnell says a more watered down version of that. And Hammer's like, this is outrageous, right? I mean, the facts didn't change. We didn't, nothing that we have learned since January 6, 2021 has made outrage at January 6 less appropriate. Uh, nothing we've learned about Trump's effort to steal the election um, have, have pushed towards exoneration of Donald Trump. Virtually all of the facts that have come in have made the case against Trump more ironclad. So if you were outraged on January 6th by what Trump helped incite or by the actions of those people, and now you're not, it's not because the facts moved you that way. It's because of mass psychology, partisanship, or some other uh, incentive structure has moved you that way. Uh, open challenge to anybody to provide me with like a list of facts that make, um, you know, that, that, that make January 6th and the effort to steal the election that Trump launched well before election day, um, um, more trivial, like, like, you know, show me where the evidence has accumulated that suggests that Trump has been, um, unfairly maligned. Uh, I'd be very curious to know what it is, um, on this point, if you want to elaborate me about the Russian hoax, fine, I'll concede it, but that's not the point. The point is a whole bunch of people like Kevin McCarthy was outraged. Lindsey Graham was outraged. Lots of people were outraged on January 6th. Now they're not. And my point is, is they're not that their, their lack of outrage now has nothing to do with following the facts and everything to do about being captured by an audience or terrified of Trump or partisan, you know, self-interest, you know, and there was this, I, I do not like beating up on Hugh Hewitt because I like the guy personally and he, he tries very hard to be charitable to us and he's a member of the dispatch. And, um, uh, but one of the reasons why I criticize Hugh from time to time is that unlike a lot of people, he has this thing about actually being honest about his motives from time to time. And, you know, so he had this conversation with um, Chris Christie last week and Chris Christie, you know, everyone's been dunking on Hugh and I, I think deservedly for the most part, but Chris Christie's behavior on this thing, you know, was, was grotesque, but I just have a lot, a lot less respect for Chris Christie than I do for Hugh. Um, and, uh, but Hugh asks him, 
um, about the January 6th stuff. Uh, and Chris Christie, who, you know, when he's on ABC's This Week, is pretty critical about Trump and January 6th. But on this, he's pandering to the audience. And he and Christie is like, um, you know, this is about, you know, the me he, he pans the media's obsession with it and um uh and says about them this is chris christie says their cause is the cause of the democratic party and so they don't want to talk about the inherent problems with the presidential debate commission oh that's right because hugh hewitt his position is is that the big news out of that resolution we can or that party the rnc meeting was separating from the presidential debate commission which i just think is ludicrous on its face um i mean you can think it's big news you think it's important i'm not really sure that it is but like the idea that like it's a bigger deal than the censure resolution legitimate political discourse thing i just think is nonsense but anyway that was hugh's position chris christie bought into it um and and then hugh says i never talk about january 6th because i like my audience I don't want them to turn me off and they're bored. They do not like it. It is illegitimate. Hewitt told the, uh, told Christie, I'm reading from the, the media write up. Um, and then, uh, Hewitt continues. I'm just curious. Do you think the blue bubble knows how absolutely uninterested America is in the January 6th select committee, which is actually a rump parliament gone wild? Um, and then Christie responds, no, I don't think they have any idea because they live in their own world. Well, first of all, screw Chris Christie because like he, he says what the blue bubble wants to hear on this kind of stuff quite a bit when he's on ABC and when he's talking to the mainstream media. Um, but like, I just think this is just like incredibly damning of the talk radio model. And I don't think everybody follows this model. I think Guy Benson does a good job about talking about stuff that his audience doesn't necessarily want to hear. Um, but like i'd have to go back and look and see what you Hewitt said about january 6 and the eastman memos and all of these kinds of things but my view is, is that he as a fan of the constitution and as a lawyer should be disgusted and outraged by what trump and his minions tried to do um and the idea that somehow uh you substitute your um audience's preferences for your own objective judgment about what is important and what they need to know is is it's not just i don't want to say just damning of hugh hewitt it's damning of of so much of the conservative media industrial complex these days because that's what so much of it does is is it says well this is what our audience wants to hear about so let's put up our 25th hot take nonsense bs thing about this rather than talk about the thing that might cause our audience um, some cognitive dissonance that might cause them some discomfort because it says something, it holds a mirror up to the, the team they're rooting for in a negative light. And, uh, and so, yeah, I absolutely believe there's a blue media bubble to be sure. But Hugh is admitting right then and there that, that there is a red media bubble and that he is helping reinforce it by, refusing to talk about things that his audience doesn't like. And I got to say, you know, look, again, I like you. I really do. But the pose of saying that he doesn't bring up stuff 
that his audience doesn't want to hear about. I mean, like part of Hugh's thing, and look, I'll admit it's part of my thing too, is bringing up weird and obscure things that the audience doesn't know about and, 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 and putting your own personal argument about why it's important. Um, and the idea that some, I mean, the only way this is defensible is if you actually believe the January 6th and the effort to steal, you know, to steal a national election based on a lie, um, is in fact unimportant and trivial. Now he may be right as a matter of political analysis that people don't care very much about it. I think that's probably true in the sense that, you know, the Demo if the Democrats go forth and try to make the January 6th stuff, the centerpiece of, or the effort to steal the election, the centerpiece of their, you know, midterm election strategy, I think they're going to get destroyed. I think they're probably going to get destroyed anyway, but, um, but there's a difference between what plays well on as a, as a political issue and what is actually important. I mean, like, debt and deficits, I think are super, super important. I don't think they play really well as political issues in campaigns. That doesn't mean they're not super, super important. It doesn't mean we shouldn't spend any time talking about them. Um, and anyway, so I think this is, again, I really I feel bad about beating up on Hugh, but again, um, I think this is emblematic of, of, of the problem. There was actually uh, a great, I've mentioned it here before, I think, there was a great exchange. I'll see if we can get it in the show notes between Mike Gallagher, the radio host, um, and Guy Benson, who I mentioned previously and who I, I like and respect. Um, and Guy got into this big argument where he said, my duty to my listeners, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, this was like five years ago. My, my duty to my listeners is to... Um, show them the respect of telling them what I actually believe and, um, and walking them through why I believe it, right. Sort of offering honest analysis and opinion. Um, and Gallagher's response, which I think was sincere was no, no, no. Your obligation is to articulate and reflect the views of your listeners. And look, in some realms of life, I think that these are uh, interesting, contestable perspectives on what the role of certain public figures are. Right? It sort of it sort of mirrors in an odd way um, the trustee versus delegate model of representation. Um, if you recall, uh, I think I talked about this with Dan Crenshaw a bit, um, um, and with Kevin Kosar because I'm a this is a dorky podcast, you know, uh, the political science, you know, distinction here is that the trustee is someone who you elect, um, to, um, you know, a trustee, the trustee form of representation is, uh, sort of Edmund Burke's letters to the, what is it? Letters to the electors of Bristol, where Burke says, look, I, you didn't send me to parliament just to do whatever you tell me to do. You sent me to parliament to, to use my faculties and my reason and my judgment to the best of my ability. And if you end up disagreeing with me, well, then you can get rid of me the next time I'm up for election, but I'm going to do what I think is right as I see it. The, um, the delegate, um, version of representation is what it sounds like. It's, it's 
No, you're just simply there to do what you're told to do by the people who sent you there. And um, I think that a lot of Americans in politics like to think that they believe in the trustee thing, um, but actually believe in the delegate thing when the trustee they send disagrees with them on something that they really care about. But this this sort of distinction between representing and in effect entertaining your audience versus informing your audience is a real distinction in 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 conservative media, and it's it's uh, and I've talked and written about this a bunch since over the last six years. It's one of these things where I thought there were a lot more people who were on the delegate side of that argument. Um, and it turns out I was wrong. There were a lot more people on that representative side of the argument where, you know, you, you're, you're supposed to um, make the best arguments for your side that your side wants to hear um, and ignore the stuff that is bad for your side. Um, and look, I, 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 again, I told you, I haven't been following the news very closely the last couple of days, but you know, this, this thing about Trump bringing classified stuff home to Mar-a-Lago and all of that. Um, yeah, there are some differences between Hillary's emails and the, and, and, and Trump's, you know, allegedly classified materials, starting with the fact that presidents have more authority to declassify things than secretaries of state do, yada, yada, yada. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you that an enormous number of people who were outraged, outraged by the Hillary email thing, as I was, I'm, I plead guilty. I, I think what Hillary did with her email stuff, the, 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 the private server thing was outrageous, you know, and I, I stand by, I mean, maybe I got excessive someplace somewhere, but for the most part, I stand by that, my criticism of her entirely. But I can guarantee you that there are a whole bunch of people who were far more outraged than I was, um, you know, far more, you know, uh, you know, apocalyptic about what she had done um, because of the way it put people's lives in danger and, 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 and yada, 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 um, who are going to shrug or completely ignore um the story about Trump bringing home boxes and boxes of classified material. He did not have a right to take, to take with him to Mar-a-Lago. Um, and, and if, if you're just going to argue that, well, presidential privilege, yada, 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 um, that gets you off the hook for a couple of the hypocrisy points, but not all of them, because if you're talking about just sort of security protocols and that kind of thing, and a cavalier attitude towards security and classification, um, then I think, you know, Trump is, you know, guilty as charged. And um, assuming the facts as they've been reported are accurate. Anyway, my point, my only point is, is that this kind of crap, which again, goes on all over the place, not just at Fox, not just with Hugh Hewitt, not just with right wing talk radio, this kind of crap is endemic to media generally. Um, is a big part of the problem. And, um, um, and one of the things I look forward to is being the one who gets to point that kind of stuff out 
on a cable news network. Um, and I also look forward to, well, I like Jake Tapper. You know, I, I, I used to be on, I used to do a show with Wolf Blitzer for like three years, 20 years ago. I, I, there are good people at CNN. There are also people I have profound disagreements with, but I'm excited about the idea of actually being able to be my whole self or at least a fuller version of myself at CNN than I could be at Fox. Um, all right. So that's that. Uh, next week I go at the end of the week, I'm going to go see my daughter. I'm very excited about that. So we'll put some, hopefully we can get some podcasts in the can again. Um, if you haven't listened to the Lyman stone, uh, podcast, I think you'll really dig it. Oh, and I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I, just more cleaning up of, of the various and sundry variety kind of thing on the, uh, podcast with Hal Brands, the historian, uh, son of H.W. Brands, uh, my AEI colleague, the Henry Kissinger professor of whatever at Johns Hopkins. I made what is considered a, a pretty fundamental faux pas in the podcasting industry, which is I had him on the show and apparently I never actually said what his name was. And I've heard from a bunch of people who said who said, you know, you, you never, you never introduced him. I mean, you said what his job title was, but you never said who he was. And, um, I take, I, this is the way I talked to Caleb about it. Uh, our, you know, head of podcasting kind of guy, producer guy. I was like, you know, look, it's my fault. It's totally my fault. Uh, but at the same time, if we have like, producers or associate producers or guy or whoever listening to the podcast, they should, when we're recording it, they really should be listening for things like that. You know, like, um, there, sh they should be sort of like the fail safe system and the, in the odd circumstance that the host forgets to say the name of the guest. So I'm not blaming them for it, but I did sort of point cause it was my fault, obviously, but I have pointed out to them like, like if I make this mistake again, it would be good if they could help me remedy it before it actually goes to air. Um, and, uh, gosh, what else? I guess that's it. Um, thanks for listening and, um, Uga Chaka, Uga Chaka, and I will see you next time. Testing, testing, wavy line, wavy line. Ooga jaka, ooga jaka. Hi, it's uh, Jonah Goldberg. I'm sorry, dear listeners. I'm sorry. Greetings, dear listeners. <laughs>